NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. The overwhelming majority of our work here involves researching and investigating wrongful convictions. These failures of our justice system are far more common than most people think, and the results are devastating. Lives are destroyed and entire families are ripped apart. And we work hard to try to right these wrongs, to give the wrongfully convicted another chance at life. But today, we're going to talk about another kind of failure in the system, a failure that unfortunately cannot be undone due to a legal precedent known commonly as double jeopardy. Today, we're not going to be talking about a wrongful conviction, but rather a wrongful acquittal. This is Season 9, Episode 5, The Case of Casey Anthony. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's nothing like Ireland's wild Atlantic Way. 1,600 miles of soaring cliffs, dreamy remote islands, and buzzing little towns. Not to mention the seafood. Oh, the seafood. And if you drive with Irish ferries, you'll arrive relaxed and ready to explore. Bring the whole gang, pets and all. Fill the boot with goodies and get a warm Irish welcome before you even get to Ireland. Hop across from Hollyhead to Dublin. Book early at irishferries.com and see travel differently. Terms and conditions apply. On July 15, 2008, the grandmother of Kaylee Anthony, her name is Cindy, called 911 in Orlando, Florida. Her granddaughter had not been seen for 31 days at that point. And after weeks of excuses from Kaylee's mother, Casey, Cindy noticed what she perceived to be the smell of a dead body coming from Casey's car. Three months later, Casey Anthony was arrested and charged with the first-degree murder of her daughter. And two months after that... Kaylee's remains were finally discovered in a wooded area near her home. Casey's story changed a lot over the next three years as she awaited trial. She ultimately admitted to being aware of Kaylee's death and the concealment of her body, but claimed that it was all an accident. And then, in July of 2011, a Florida jury acquitted Casey Anthony of the murder, and she walked free. Retired New York City prosecutor and FBI profiler Jim Clemente investigated this unbelievable case not once, but twice. First, as an active supervisory special agent with the FBI, and then years later as a documentarian. Jim and his team dug deeply into the case and reported their findings on an amazing docuseries on the Oxygen Network, and also on his podcast, Real Crime Profile. You'll have a really hard time finding anyone that has a deeper knowledge of this case than he does. Joining me today 
Right. Is Jim, Jim Clementi. It is great to act, see you, actually physically see you. We're on a Zoom call, and I haven't got to see your pretty face now for it's almost a year. <laughs> pretty? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you must be drunk this early in the morning. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen you in so long, Bob. It's great to see you as well. And uh, I'm glad that you're you know, still doing well and motoring on in this crazy, crazy time we're living in. Yeah, it's becoming interesting trying to figure out how to keep putting stuff together, but something that uh, you have managed to continue to do through all of your projects. Uh, for those of you that don't know Jim, and I'm sure all of you do, Jim is has a long list of credentials as a FBI profiler, as a TV producer, maker, podcaster. Is there anything else I, I'm missing? Movie maker? Writer, I guess, is there. You know? Oh, yeah, there was the whole Criminal Minds thing, that little project you were working on. For yeah. Yeah, for... 15 years. I don't know. It's weird. You know, right. <laughs> kind of a flash in the pan thing. You know, never really materialized. <laughs> right, right. Only 15 but, seasons. Bob, I have to tell you, there will be more Criminal Minds. You're kidding. No, I'm serious. Can you give us any more information about that? I can. It's not officially greenlit yet, but CBS All Access is now called Paramount Plus. And mm -hmm. they announced the other day that they are in development with us, with XG Productions, my company, and doing a show called Real Criminal Minds. And what that show will be, will be myself and Joe Montaigne talking about episodes of Criminal Minds and then showing real cases that inspired episodes of Criminal Minds. And so we'll be doing the real side of it and showing how we tone down things for... Uh, for the for TV the show. network TV show. And we also, we also did some things to, you know, sort of protect the identities of real victims and so forth. But the profiling and the behavior is all spot on from that show. That's awesome. I'll be looking forward to that. And Jim and I also got to work on a project last year. Jim helped produce and kind of co-hosted with me our, our Forgotten West Memphis 3 series uh, that yeah. aired this past spring, right in the heart of the pandemic. Yeah, that was awesome, though. It was great working with you, and what an experience. I I thought I knew that case, and uh, the details that you brought out and the things that we discovered kind of together really were eye-opening and shocking and really changed my view of that case permanently. Yeah, and, I'm, and hopefully this uh, this lockdown ends and we can move forward further with actually getting to a final determination in that one. Yeah, that would be great. What we're here to talk about today is a case that a couple of projects that you you've done, you've worked on. I was actually there the day that that you and Lisa and Laura recorded your first ever episode of Real Crime Profile. Yes, you were our first ever guest, and yep. uh, that was awesome. We got pizza, we sat around and came up with the name, and we went into the studio and we started making history. Yep. And that's awesome. And the podcast is fantastic. And the case we're going to cover today, you covered on that podcast. But before we jump into today's case, can you, can you real quick talk about some of the other projects where people can find you on a regular basis? I know that I know there's all these TV projects, but you have another amazing podcast that I've been on a couple of times and I absolutely yeah. love called Best Case, Worst Case. Can you explain to them a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Best Case, Worst Case came about because, well, two things. Criminal Minds. It always comes back to Criminal Minds. Mandy mm -hmm. Patinkin, the first day he met me, said to me, tell me your best case and your worst case. 
And I said to him, my worst case is not for entertainment purposes, but I'll tell you my best case. And I told him the story of Davri Chen. He was a six-year-old boy who was abducted and I helped get him back way beyond the expectation that he'd still be alive and okay. And he was, and that was an amazing thing. Very rarely happens under those circumstances. And after I told him that, he picked up the phone, he called Mark Gordon, and he said, okay, I'll do that show, Criminal Minds, but you got to meet this guy, Jim. And they based his character on me after that. So we became very close. And that question that he asked me always stuck with me because there are cases that profoundly affect you. And I'm sure having talked to you about when you were a fireman and a fire chief and, a, and an arson investigator, cases that affected you. And I eventually came around to the point where I thought, you know, I think it's important for people in the public to understand what law enforcement and other investigators go through as a part of their career. And they don't just shake it off when they go home and just say, okay, you know, I'm getting changed and I'll be fine. There are some profound things that people experience. And so that gave me the idea of doing the podcast, Best Case, Worst Case, to show people behind the police lines what it's like for cops to be cops, for prosecutors to be prosecutors, defense attorneys to be defense attorneys and investigators to be investigators. There are some really profound effects on life and people can learn a tremendous amount from that and also sort of hack life in that way because the things that we learned as investigators on the front lines can actually help people avoid really tragic things that can happen in life. And so I love that podcast because we have interviewed, we're, we're coming up on our 200th episode, which is awesome. We've interviewed a tremendous number and variety of people, including yourself a couple of times, mm -hmm. about cases that they've experienced that stick with them, the good ones and the bad ones, and the ones that sort of cross both lines. So I love that podcast. It's such a, for me, it's a way of not only venting my own cases and experiences, but allowing other people to do the same thing. And that's why I think it's such a special time when we get to do that podcast. I'd like to, in maybe in the, in, the, in the coming weeks, have you come back on, because there's a case, I listen to Best Case, Worst Case, and you just recently told a story about yourself going undercover and i think the story it it maybe doesn't seem like one of these the cases that we're talking about in this series but it's such a fascinating story we'll have to make some time if you're up for it to come back on and tell that one sure yeah actually yeah when i was undercover it was a long-term undercover i did a number of undercover operations most of them fairly short term some just a day and some a couple of weeks but this one was three years long and it was incredibly profound and in how it affected my life and just what I learned about myself and, and about law enforcement and investigations are just invaluable. But I'm actually, I've just finished um, working, collaborating with a great young writer named Eric Mallory Morgan on the script for the pilot of that series. And uh, it's called Live to Tell. If you know the Madonna song, Live to Tell, that'll give you some indication of just what that story entails. And it's kind of a, profound story because it crosses so many different aspects of my life and my career and my experiences. 
we're also talking to the people at Wired about doing a, a movie version of it as well. So, oh, really? Yeah. So they really love the tech aspect of it. That's quite fascinating as well. So there's so many things that are on the horizon. I'm so excited about it and so happy that because of technology, we're able to keep going even despite this whole COVID just disaster and everything else that's going on in this country. I just, I'm glad that people are becoming more awakened to the issues. I'm not glad that people are being violent because I never think violence is the answer, but I am so glad that we're discussing things and that some things seem to be moving forward and it's a ray of hope, you know, which is why I always like talking to you, Bob, because I think your entire podcast just exemplifies hope and the fact that we can all work together for a common goal to do justice and to do good. So thank you for being that, that leader that you are. Well, I learned a lot of what I'm doing from you. And on that regards, let's go ahead and shift into the case we're going to talk about today, partially because I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very tragic and interesting case, the way everything shook out. But also, I think it's a great exam, a great opportunity for our listeners to see how you, as an FBI profiler, kind of your process, how you work through investigating sure. a case. So, the case we're going to talk about today is the case of the murder of Kaylee Anthony. Yeah, and some might know it as the as the case of Casey Anthony, the the woman who was ultimately acquitted of the crime. But can you first walk through and just give us kind of the beats of the basic overview of the case, as far as you know, what was the crime? What were the facts that were they that were actually known before things went to trial? And then we'll circle back around and and get your thoughts on the whole case. Sure. Well, Bob, as you know, this is a very complicated case, and it's a case that I worked both as an FBI profiler and as a documentarian later after I retired. So, as you and I both experienced with the Forgotten West Memphis Three, when you're outside of the formal law enforcement strictures, sometimes you can actually access people more readily. People mm -hmm. might be more available and more willing to actually tell you details, the truth, because sometimes they're afraid to say what really happened to law enforcement because they feel right. the ramifications are so extreme. And I think just like in the Forgotten West Memphis Three, when I did the case of Kaylee Anthony for Oxygen Network, I believe that Laura and I found details that were not available to law enforcement, were not available to us when we actually, when I actually worked the case when I was an FBI profiler in the BAU. So let's talk about how the case came in. It came in originally as a child abduction. It was a 911 call by Casey Anthony's mother, so the grandmother of Kaylee Anthony, the abducted victim. And she said that Kaylee has been missing for 31 days, which is a very, very bizarre and unusual circumstance. Right. Usually when a child five years old goes missing, law enforcement knows about it immediately. Back in the day, there was all this thing about 24 hours, wait 24 hours and all that. Then my unit, the BAU, did research in the area and found that of the children who were abducted and murdered, 44% of them are killed within the first hour, 73% in the first three hours, and 99% in the first 24 hours. You can't wait 24 hours. You have to be right. on it immediately. 
And to get a call to 911, which says that a five-year-old girl has been missing for 31 days, well, that's a grim, grim situation. And how did it happen? Well, the first thing we do is we look at victimology. And this is a five-year-old girl who's being taken care of by her mother, Casey Anthony, who was a young, you know, attractive, vibrant woman. And there are videos of her, of Casey, playing guitar and singing songs to Kaylee and Kaylee's big, wide eyes, laughing and playing and singing. And there's a lot of love and happiness in this family. Mm -hmm. What happened? How could it go wrong? So those are our first questions. Who was Kaylee vulnerable to? Did someone come into this house and take this child? Well, when you start looking at the details, Casey Anthony said that she had left Kaylee with her nanny, Zanny, and that Zanny just disappeared. And Casey took law enforcement to an apartment building saying this is where Zanny lived and took them to a vacant apartment. And the apartment was completely empty. And when they looked at the rental logs for who used to live there, there was nobody named Zanny. There had been nobody in that apartment for months. And it clearly wasn't true. And she said that she worked for Universal Studios. She took the detective. She said she left her ID in her office. She actually took the detectives there, went through the pretense of going to security and talking to the head of security in the booth saying, oh, I left my ID inside. Uh, can we just go up to my office? And talking her way into that place when, in fact, she didn't work there. She walked into a building, walked all the way up to the third floor with them, walked all the way down the hall, put her hands on a door that she said was her office door, turned around to them and said, I lied. I don't work here. This is a pathological liar. This is a crazy situation. What does that mean? For poor Kaylee Anthony, what does that mean? It doesn't bode well. But then, as the months go on, and there's no trace of Kaylee found, we dig deeper into Casey's life, and you see that for those 31 days that she was telling her mother, that Casey was telling Kaylee's grandmother that she had... Kaylee and everything was fine and she was with the nanny and everything's fine. For those 31 days, you look at Casey's behavior and you see that Casey was out partying, uh, going to a wet t-shirt contest, pursuing this boyfriend and basically wanting to move in and things going really fast. And then you find out that he didn't want to be with a mother and a child. He wasn't willing to do that. Wow. What does that mean? And so it looked very dark. And I'll fast forward because there's so many details and we can go back and cover them if you want to. But the fact is that then Kaylee's body is found in a swampy area wrapped in plastic bags and basically a tote bag. And, and, because of the weather, because of the water, because of the time, she was skeletonized. And it was quite a horrific sight. Right, her body wasn't, she went missing in, well, she was reported missing in July of 2008. Right. But she actually went missing in June and her body wasn't found until December. 
right in the, in the in the bags if we if we can kind of back up and start moving through some of this the when we talked about the victimology and the things that the bizarreness of the 911 call so if i understand correctly casey anthony lived with her parents so casey and kaylee lived with her parents and somehow for a month for 31 days mom is asking where's casey where's casey or where's kaylee and Casey is giving her excuse after excuse after excuse, and it's not for a month until finally uh, when Cindy, her mother, calls 911, and she says that you know she's been missing for 31 days, and the other detail was that she smelled what she thought was a, a smell of a dead body in Casey's car. Right. So what preceded that was that Casey had basically moved out of the house and was moving in, had, had moved in with this new boyfriend. And mm-hmm. basically just immediately took over in his life and, you know, was basically smothering the guy, basically. Mm-hmm. And so she was avoiding Kaylee's grandmother, Casey's mother. And so Casey told the grandmother that everything was fine, that Kaylee was just with the nanny, Zanny, and that she would bring her over soon. But all this stuff is happening. She's so busy. She'll get there. And what the grandmother did was say, look, it's almost Kaylee's birthday and we need to be together. I need to see her. I need to hold her. I mean, I miss her. She's, you know, an incredibly important part of my life and I haven't seen her for a month. And finally, the grandmother just cornered Casey and said, you need to take me to her now. And when she got a call from a impound lot that Casey's car had been impounded and she went to go pick it up. They opened the car and it smelled like death. And that's a very visceral human reaction. It's something that nobody can mistake. Once you smell death, you can never forget it. And the death of a human is so much more intense than say, you know, something that an animal that might be killed alongside of a road, you know, that smells, but it's just not quite as intense as in a visceral thing as when you smell a human body that's decaying. And so obviously that really upset Casey's mother and she called 911 with Casey in the car. And it was very bizarre, very bizarre what Casey was trying to say. And that's when she started taking these detectives on this wild goose chase to find this zanny nanny that never existed and this job that she didn't really have. Because what Casey was doing was saying, I am going to work every day, so I drop off Kaylee at this nanny. Well, she wasn't going to work. She had lost her job months before, but she was pretending. And this is the first aspect of this pathological lying that we were able to document. And it just kept building and building and building. There were so many examples of it. She was actually a a pathological liar. She could not go two minutes without telling a lie. And part of it was image-based. She wanted to project this image that she was so successful and doing well when she wasn't. And she also wanted to project this image of being a great mother when she wasn't that either. Although she did care for Kaylee, I think she was very immature. Casey was, I think Casey was very immature and very self-centered and she wanted to live her life. And instead of 
admitting to her parents that she wasn't doing great and asking for their help. She set up this facade and had to do something with Kaylee. And there are abundant theories about what she did, but one of them was potentially that she had drugged her to put her to sleep so that Casey could run around and and live her life as a, not as a single mom, but as a single woman. And so that could very well be something that led to the death of Kaylee Anthony. So when did the, when did the FBI get involved in the investigation? Because she was arrested in October of 2008. So, you know, a, a few months later, so it's July, uh, Kaylee's reported missing. October, they arrest Casey and charge her with first degree murder. And then in December, they, they find the remains of Kaylee. At what point during that investigation was the FBI involved? We got involved in the BAU immediately when the abduction was reported. And of course, what happened at that point was that there was a search done. We were cooperating with the local authorities. There was a search done of the house. But because Casey reported that the location that Kaylee was last seen was at an apartment complex miles away, that became the epicenter of the search. In other words, we did concentric circle searches around that location because she had lied. We thought at that point that she was this distraught mother whose daughter was missing. We didn't know about the pathological lying. We didn't know about all of her behaviors at that time. She was very good at hiding and lying and very bold about it. Like I said, she told the detectives that she worked there. She, wa- she went to Universal Studios with them. She talked her way through security. She walked all the way up to the door on the third floor of an office that she didn't work at. And then she realized, well, I, I can't really get inside this door, can I? So I have to admit that I was lying the whole time. So she was just hoping they would have let her off the hook before they got that far. Exactly. I mean, it's unbelievable, but it shows her lack of criminal sophistication, and that will rear its ugly head later in this story as well. But there's, there was a tremendous effort to find Kaylee, and unfortunately, it was successfully misdirected so that the search of her neighborhood did not happen till many months later. And there were screw-ups and false leads and all sorts of things that happened on an investigative level. But one of the things that happened on a higher level was, as you mentioned, she was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. Mm -hmm. There was no body at the time. And even when her body was discovered, and I walked in that marsh, I I saw the location, I, I saw how how overgrown and swampy it was. And I also saw that it is the first open space at the end of her block. In other words, it is the closest wooded area to where Casey lived with Kaylee. Now, you and I know that when somebody breaks into somebody else's home and kills a child, that the time that that person spends with that body increases the risk of being caught. So people who have no connection to the home would not 
need to take the body away from the home unless it was an actual abduction. But if it was an actual abduction, you would take the child to a place where you controlled the space, and then you would dispose of the body as close to that point as possible so that you don't spend any additional time with that body. That's evidence against you. It's very risky to be connected with it. There's no reason for somebody to abduct a child away from their neighborhood and then bring the child back to their neighborhood to dispose of the body. Right. But if someone were in that neighborhood and wanted to dispose of the body, they would dispose of the body in a location that was as quick and efficient as possible. And they would do it in a place that is very nearby. So they don't have to spend a lot of time with that body. You know, it's interesting you said it was the first open space because that back in our season one, and when I was investigating the murder of Heyman Lee, the Anand Syed case, her burial site in, in Leakin Park in Baltimore, it didn't make sense to me until I physically went to the place and I have a, a working theory of where I think she was actually killed and got in my car and said, okay, why did they pick that spot? And I started driving and drive down and there's just, there's businesses and and there's, you know, there, there's just people everywhere and, and turn down to the road into Leakin Park and you drive through this whole windy road. And I didn't know the person I was with had the actual map. I didn't know where she was killed. I, said, I just want to see if I'm in the killer, if I'm the killer and I'm driving here and I'm trying to get rid of stuff you've taught me, mm-hmm. they're going to get rid of this body as soon as possible. And I'm driving around and I come around a bend and all of a sudden it's a dark bend. It's the first open, it's the first spot where you can pull your car off and you can get away from the road and there's not lights. And I said, I would, I would take her right there. And that was the exact space where the spot where her body was killed. So coming from that direction, it sounds like almost identical to the Casey right. Anthony situation where it's like, if you left this house with the body, where's the first place that you can get rid of the body? And it sounds like it's, it's the place where her remains were found. It was right behind the backyard of the last house on her block. Mm-hmm. And because that was the last house, there was a right-hand turn there, and it proceeded down towards a school, but there was woods between that the backyard of that house and the school, and that is where the body was located. And there will be a tremendous amount of work done about that forensically, that location, and, and how the body was discovered, and, and it was photographed very well and preserved. And the biggest issue that came up was duct tape because there was basically a ring of duct tape that appeared to be wrapped around the skull. And that duct tape, and there was all sorts of plant life growing up through the skull and so forth. I'm trying not to get too graphic, but, but it was clear that there, there had been you know, sort of a tide where, where the swamp was deeper with water and then dried out and then deeper again. And there was different levels of flora and fauna in there. And you could tell that because of the matting of the hair that was still attached to the tape and so on and so forth, that it was likely that this tape had been wrapped around Kaylee's face and potentially her mouth and nose. And when the prosecutor saw this, He immediately believed that this was an indication that this is how Kaylee died. But the autopsy 
didn't confirm that. The autopsy did not list a cause of death. And because of that, I advised the prosecutor not to go for first degree murder. I said, you have a few factors here. One, you have a beautiful, young, single mom who's on trial here. And for a jury to say they're going to kill that person for what she did. They sought the death penalty. Yes, they did. Yep. And I said, to do that, it's an unsurmountable task. I do not believe any jury is going to do that. And I think you need to be more realistic about the possibilities. Because what I said was, there's evidence that Kaylee was in wrapped in plastic bags in the trunk of Casey's car for up to three days after she died. Well, we all know Florida Sun, and as you said, she went missing in June, June to July. It's hot as hell and muggy as hell in Florida. And things decompose very quickly. And if Kaylee's body was in the back of a hatchback in the hot sun in Florida for just a few days, you know that it would have really smelled badly. Right. And here's the thing. I believe it's possible that Casey could have wrapped Kaylee's head in that tape to keep the smells from seeping out and the stuff from seeping out rather than that as a way to kill her. I do not believe that that's, that there's any indication in the evidence that shows that that was the method of killing. And because the prosecutor looked at it as such and was very emotional about it, he said, we're going to charge her with first degree murder, go for the death penalty, and we're not going to charge any lesser included offenses. We're not going to give the jury an out. So it's all or nothing. Which was a really bad strategy choice. And it backfired. Right. Now, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about that for just a minute and explain why that is. For those of you that, that, that don't know, aside prior to being uh, part of the behavioral analysis unit, Jim was a prosecutor in New York City. Mm-hmm. Me just looking at things that are going on in the world, the world today, I'm looking at like the, the George Floyd case mm-hmm. as an example. And the the charges that have been put onto the I think Derek Chauvin, the officer that that had his knee on Floyd's neck and killed him, in my opinion. Right. Now, now, to be clear, in my opinion, that man needs to be in prison for a very long time. I've had concerns about which level they're trying to prosecute him at. You know, there's a big there was a big outcry to charge him with first degree murder, and when they, if they did second, then the people are saying first isn't enough. So you don't need to get into that case. I'm just saying that's what has it on the front of my mind. And what I was mm-hmm. remembering when that's coming up is this case. So can you explain why, in your opinion, it was a poor strategy decision to charge Casey Anthony with first degree murder and, and go after the death penalty and why that didn't work out and why that was a problem? OK, the two reasons why I think it was a bad strategy was one, that the autopsy report and the findings from the medical examiner were insufficient to support any particular cause of death. So we didn't know exactly how she died. Did she die of suffocation? Did she die of strangulation? Did she die of being 
overdosed with ether. Did she die of being taped over her, her mouth and nose being taped over with duct tape? Did she die because she put a plastic bag over her head? Did she die because she accidentally fell into the pool because the ladder was left down and she drowned? All of those are possibilities. And there isn't any definitive proof one way or the other. And without that definitive proof, you can't tell whether it was accidental or intentional. And this is the typical equivocal death investigation. And this is one of the areas of my expertise when I was in the BAU, was looking at cases of death where you didn't know for sure how the person died. And you go through whether this was homicide, suicide, accident, natural, or undetermined. And Kaylee Anthony's death was undetermined. There was no way to tell whether it was an accident or whether it was intentional. And there's no indication that it was suicide. It would be extremely rare, almost unheard of for a five-year-old to do something that would cause their own death intentionally. And there was no indication of any natural causes. So it wasn't clear whether it was a homicide or accident. So we had to classify it as undetermined. And with that determination, I don't believe there is evidence that you can put forward that says this person intentionally and premeditatingly killed this five-year-old girl, her own daughter. And so I thought it was a major mistake. The other issue is that when you're looking at a jury, 12 people, 12 peers who look at Casey Anthony and see her sitting there in that courtroom and realize how young she is and how vulnerable she looks at this point and sees the videos of her playing guitar and singing with her daughter and sees her laughing and joking with Kaylee and seeing how that love seemed to be apparent to make the decision to put her to death, I didn't think it was possible. I did not think that under any circumstances it would be possible. And it could have been that strategy to charge only first-degree murder and not any lesser-included offenses, I think was another misstep, a major strategic error. Because for your listeners, if a prosecutor charges first-degree murder, then he has to prove that it was intentional and it was premeditated and that it was a very heinous act, you know, above and beyond a, a quote, regular murder. And if you can't prove that, they can't find first-degree murder. But what many prosecutors will do will, will be charging second-degree murder in case the jury finds that they don't think that it was intentional and premeditated. But what happens a lot of times when you have serious cases like this, juries will do what they call a compromise verdict. And what that means is basically they know this person is guilty of something. They don't quite know if it was the worst thing that was charged, but they know they're guilty of something. So they, they acquit on the highest charge and they find them guilty of the next lower charge. And the Prosecutor did not want that. He did not want to put that into the hands of a jury, which I right. think is a major mistake. There yeah. are some jurisdictions across the country, and everyone is different, where if you charge first-degree murder and you don't find it, then you can automatically consider a lesser included. 
But in Florida, that's not the case. And so they made a decision thinking, we're going to force the hand of the jury. They're going to know she did something wrong. So they're going to have to convict her of the worst crime on the books and make her eligible for the worst punishment on the books, the death penalty. So again, major strategy decision that went very much south in this case. Right. So they they didn't give the jury the option to convict on the lesser charge. And so the end result was she was acquitted. She was acquitted. She walked. She walked. So in, in a nutshell, just based on facts we know, we know that Kaylee was missing for a month. Supposedly, Casey doesn't know where she is, but she's lying about where she is to her mother that whole time. Her mom finally gets fed up after a month of can't figure out where she's at and smells death in Casey's car, calls the police. Casey continues to lie and continues to lie, makes up stories about this nanny. And then Kaylee's body is ultimately found just right down the street from the house wrapped up in a bag. And she and Casey Anthony is walking completely free, in my opinion, and I think yours too, based mostly on this strategy decision. Because they tried yeah. to, they, they overcharged and didn't give another option. And that left the jury with no choice but to acquit. Absolutely. I absolutely believe that. And I have to say, you know, this doesn't happen very often, but I have to say, I told the prosecutor point blank that that was a real likelihood because of the situation, because the autopsy did not list the cause of death, because we were uncertain, and because I, could come up with a reasonable explanation for that tape that was post-mortem. Mm-hmm. And he just didn't accept that. And he just went ahead and did what he did. And, you know, he and the rest of society had to suffer the consequences of that. She was acquitted. Uh, she, I think she was found guilty on a, you know, lying to the police charge. But all the serious charges, well, the only really serious charge she was acquitted on. And you know, her defense was that it was actually her father or mother that left the pool ladder down and Kaylee climbed up the pool ladder into the pool and drowned while Casey was sleeping and that they all decided to cover it up. The father was the one that, that said they had to cover it up and that he did all these horrible things. And I will say that in the midst, as you know, in the midst of investigations, you find out some pretty bizarre things. And there were some bizarre things, questions and answers that happened around that family. But I will say that I know that the father was cooperating with us during the investigation and he, he was an open book. And the things that Casey alleged during the trial, and I'm not going to go into them, but you know, there was, no, there was never any corroboration of any of that. Uh, so I don't know if it was made up defense strategy or what. but. There were some serious issues, obviously, with Casey and in that family. And whatever it was that happened to Kaylee, it's a terrible tragedy because she was such a beautiful, lovely little child and so happy and, and carefree. It's just unfortunate. But one of the issues that also fueled the prosecution's fire was that there were searches on Casey's computer for chloroform and foolproof suffocation. The issue was the timing of those. And it is possible that the chloroform search was actually a misspelling or 
typing in chlorophyll, as the grandmother said, but I don't know if that's the case or not. But foolproof suffocation was also followed by a search for suicide. And it is possible that Casey, after the death of Kaylee, was suicidal. And uh, so that could have been a behavioral response to the situation she found herself in. She probably thought that it was futile to go on living, that everything was going to come crashing down on her, that she had managed for 31 days to avoid facing the truth that Kaylee was dead. And she may have been suicidal at the time. But again, because we didn't know for a fact, I thought that the prosecution should keep that open as a possibility that it was some kind of reckless, unknown event that happened and she should have been charged accordingly. They decided not to. And we know that the result was a complete and total just (laughs) unaccountability for the death of a beautiful five-year-old girl. I think that when you look at the actual crime scenes and there's the primary crime scene wherever she was actually killed or wherever she died, the secondary one where she was put into Casey's car apparently and spent some time. And then, you know, I mean, Casey actually threw garbage bags in the back of her trunk to try to cover the smell. Right. You know, it just, she did so many things that were so clearly indicative of a guilty mind. And then there's the tertiary crime scene, which is the place where her body was actually disposed of. And we did a number of of experiments to try to determine uh, whether Casey could have put the body there or whether uh, it would have taken more than one person or a stronger person. And we were pretty, um, pretty convinced that Casey could definitely have been the one to put the body there and that she could have done this acting alone and that there was a definitive set of circumstances that tended to prove that Kaylee was in Casey's car after she died and probably for a significant period of time, up to three days or so. And the behavior on Casey's part, for example, borrowing a shovel from her neighbor across the street and backing her car up to the garage instead of pulling it in front ways like she normally does. These kinds of behaviors out of the norm indicate that something was going on at that time. And so it pretty much helped our timeline in terms of when things happened and who was involved in those things that happened. So there's a a fair amount of evidence that pointed to Casey being the only one that knew about her death and that Casey acted on her own and then tried to put it out of her mind by just going on living her life and having fun for a month until everything came crashing down with that 911 call. So I would say that this case was just a, a very glaring example of how behavior just speaks volumes about an offender, especially someone who isn't a really sophisticated criminal, somebody who hasn't done this kind of thing before their behavior and their behavioral changes can just point directly at who is responsible and what they're doing. But there is a a real pain in my heart because I feel that Kaylee's death went 
unaddressed by the justice system because the prosecutors were, I think, blinded by this death lust that they wanted to kill Casey Anthony. They wanted the government to kill Casey Anthony, and they did not see anything else as a, as a possibility. And they lost sight of the fact that, you know, Casey Anthony is a human being and people on a jury are also humans and they're going to feel for her no matter what she did. And it just, it's just so sad that Kaylee's life was snuffed out somehow, either accidentally or intentionally. And Nobody was held responsible for it. You know, it almost seems to me, as I've read about and studied the case, that the prosecutor almost was hoping for almost the same thing you just said, but in a different way. I think he was hoping for the jury to convict on emotion yeah. because he, I feel like I feel like he had to know. You know, for for me, the you know, the, the with the work I do with with truth and justice, I want fair trials. I want juries to vote and work based on the rule of law. And given what they had presented in front of them, I think technically they got it right. There was not evidence to prove first degree capital murder. There wasn't. And so they got it right. And I, and I, have to, I feel like the prosecutor had to know there was no evidence for that. And so the only thing I, that makes sense to me is that he was hoping that through his presentation of his case, that he could stir up the emotions the other way against Casey to get his death sentence. Yeah, well, I have to say that one of the things I've learned over the years is that in the justice system, when a female offender does something, they typically get the book thrown at them by the justice system. Mm-hmm so much harder than their male counterparts. And especially if they're, you know, sort of rising to this, you know, level of almost celebrity status. I don't know that people believe that there's something inherently evil about women who do something wrong. And they, a lot of times punish them to the extreme. And I will say the one exception to that rule is when you have a female child sex offender and that female is good looking. In those cases, females tend to get very light sentences. Right. And nobody in the justice system looks at the fact that they have done something just as heinous as any male who has sexually abused a child. Whereas Females who are not outwardly beautiful sometimes suffer the same fate that men suffer, you know, in those situations. It's a very bizarre aspect to our justice system. And I've literally seen people say, oh, that kid was lucky that she did what she did to him. Right. It's gross. It's gross. It's horrible. And it should be treated exactly the same. And then you see the scales tip violently the other direction. For women when it involves a child from the, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I've studied this in the past. If something like what happened with Kaylee Anthony, if a woman who is a mother is on trial for something that happened to her child, 
I don't remember the statistics, but it is it is an astounding percentage higher for a woman to get convicted in the book thrown at her in that position than if it was a father. And the book thrown at her is the like really stark part. They will get, you know, 27 years or 57 years or 97 years mm-hmm. where a man in that situation might get 10 or 15. Right. I've, I've seen it when I was studying it a while back, specifically, if you look at children who die from being left in cars, mm-hmm. which is very sadly is something that happens every, you know, many yeah. times a year throughout the country. If it was a man, the father, their percentage of being acquitted for that, you know, or a jury sees, OK, it's horrible, but it was an accident is way higher than if it was a woman, the mother in the car. They they on a much higher percentage get convicted. It's like the juries think, well, you're a mother. You should know better, which is right. it's, it's, they're just ridiculous trends in, in, in our, our legal system that just defy logic. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they make sense, I guess, the way people are thinking, but it's really disgusting that it that it happens that way. Yeah. And I feel like that's what the prosecutor here was was maybe counting on, because certainly he wasn't counting on the evidence to prove the case that he was trying to make. No, and I, you know, I remember certain people in my office, you know, sort of applauding the fact that he was going for the death penalty. And I just shook my head. I just said, I just cannot believe that on these facts, you would do that. She may have killed her daughter. She may have killed her daughter intentionally. But what you can prove is none of that. And therefore, you should be charging accordingly. Because you are risking that you're going to be convicting her on a motion and sentencing her to death on an error because you don't know for a fact that that's what happened. But all he had to do is look at that duct tape and he was convinced. And it was really it was really sad. Well, I was going to ask you to kind of circle back a little bit. The duct tape caused him to want to go after the death penalty and all that. But. Casey was actually arrested and charged with first-degree murder before the body was found. What was it that led to the arrest? What led to the arrest and charging for first-degree murder was the 31 days. And when they discovered what Casey's behavior was, particularly in the beginning of that 31 days, where she was out partying, was competing in a wet t-shirt contest, was... Uh, moved in with her new boyfriend of just, you know, I mean, just almost immediately in that relationship and basically celebrating her freedom. They saw that as a clear sign of psychopathy and an intent that she got rid of her child to get her out of the way so that she could go live her life. Again, something that may or may not be true. It could be an extreme form of denial. It could be that Casey witnessed or saw the results of an accident and saw that her daughter was dead now because of her negligence or because she was distracted and she went into denial mode and lied to herself, tried to avoid thinking about it. And that's why she embarked on that kind of partying lifestyle for that time period. And all I know is that you can come up with a theory and you can argue that theory all you want. But if you don't have facts, you shouldn't be relying on that. 
you could say that the, it's one possibility and let the jury decide. And they decided that you gave us no choice. The only choice we had, there was no proof of. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondering. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. Lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth, and Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.